The title of our message today is The Transforming Power of the Gospel. A secondary title is What Changes in Us When We Get Saved. And it's from Luke chapter 19, the first 10 verses, where Zacchaeus is saved. And when he is saved, he comes out and he says, I will now give half of what I have to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone, I will repay fourfold. So there's an immediate transformation when he becomes a follower of Christ. And I want to show you by the end of this study that when you come to Christ, God changes things inside of you. There is an immediate transformation that happens and you become a new person. You are given a fresh start. You are given a new beginning. The things that happened in the past don't matter whether they are achievements you've made or whether they are sins that you have committed or mistakes that you have made, you now have a fresh start to live the life that God wants for you. Now, I want to give you just a few points on uh, before we get into this passage. Just, these are just things that help us to understand the passage a little bit better. I want to remind you that Jesus's name is Joshua in Hebrew. It, it was brought over into Greek as Esos and then into being anglicized as Jesus. They mean the same thing. You're talking about the same person. God isn't confused. When you say in the name of Jesus, God's like, I don't know. Was it Joshua? Would you, who are you talking about? He's not confused. He knows. But his name in Hebrew means salvation. And Jesus will say of Zacchaeus, salvation has come to this house today. So you've got to play on words. Salvation comes into the house of Zacchaeus. Salvation came to that house that day. And Zacchaeus was saved because where salvation goes, salvation goes. Where Jesus goes, he brings salvation with him. And he's on his way to Jerusalem and he's entering into Jericho and he meets the blind man. And we talked about that last week as being a type of how we are saved. Now he goes through Jericho and as he's leaving Jericho, he runs into a spiritually blind man, Zacchaeus, and we see him transformed. And he's on his way to Jerusalem to bring salvation. Next week, we'll look at, the, at Palm Sunday. We'll look at the triumphant entry. And we're going to look at a passage in Zechariah 9.9, which says, Behold, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt and having salvation. We see this is all about salvation. That's why Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Whatever else he did is blessings towards us. He gave us teachings that helped us to understand things. He showed us the heavenly father, but he came to seek and save the lost. And we get that clearly from this passage. We also know what Zacchaeus's name means. It means called by the Lord. It's a Hebrew name. So he's Hebrew and his name is called by the Lord. But there's irony in the name because he's a chief tax collector. And chief tax collectors are not called by God. At least that's not what they think. They think that he is a sinner. They think that he is the rottenest person on the face of this earth. He has gotten rich on the backs of poor people in Israel. And that is the truth, by the way. Tax collectors in the first century got rich off the backs of people, all people, but poor people as well in Israel. And they were considered to be the scum of the earth. But yet his name is called by God and shock of all shocks, he's going to be called by God. The, the irony is lifted from the name. 
Also, we know the name of Bartimaeus. That's the blind beggar when Jesus went into Jericho. Uh, Zacchaeus is when he's leaving Jericho. He, when he enters into Jericho, he, he gets to Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus' name means son of honor. But he was disabled. And praise God, in our day, we don't look down on disabled people. We don't think that there's something in their character that made them, they're not honored, so they're disabled. We, we care for the disabled. And I'm glad we go out of our way to help those who are disabled, as we should. But in their day, they thought they were disabled because of something negative in their character. So, son of honor was healed and made son of honor. He wasn't a son of honor because he was a blind beggar, but he became a son of honor when he came to Jesus. There may be irony in your life, but Jesus can turn that irony around and make it incredibly positive. All right. So those are just a couple of things that are going to help us as we face this. Also, just let me say this one more point. There are types and shadows in the Bible and the Bible is hyperlinked. It's 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 connected in so many ways. And Jericho is a type or a symbol of foreshadowing of the Christian walk beginning. We could say Jericho itself is a type of salvation because when Joshua brought the children of Israel to the promised land, the first thing that he did was go and battle at Jericho. And so Jericho becomes a type of the beginning of the Christian walk because the whole going into the land of Canaan is a type of being a Christian. And we learn when, when you study the book of Joshua, you see those types and shadows clearly. And so it's no shock to us that Jesus saves the blind man and then saves Zacchaeus as he's going out of the place that represents salvation. It becomes very clear what this is really all about. Now let's pick it up. I want to cover the passage. And then I want to, at the end of our study, talk about three different ways that we are transformed by God. What the Bible says about our transformation when we become Christians because we see the transformation of this, this fella. Verse 1 of, of Luke 19. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, and that tells you something amazing is going to happen. We'll see why this is amazing in a minute, why it's deserving of the now behold. Whenever the Bible says now behold, it means this is really amazing. You got to you got to check this out. And it's not like YouTube when someone says you've got to see this and you click on it and realize I could have lived without that my whole entire life. <laughs> when the Bible says now behold, it is something worth really seeing. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, the Lord calls a Hebrew man who was a chief tax collector. He was not only a tax collector, he was a chief tax collector. He was over tax collectors and had helped them rob the people from their taxes. Do you know that the United States is one of the least countries as far as taxes go? It's crazy because Tax Freedom Day is May something, meaning everything you earn before May something, you pay in taxes. And the other countries have greater taxes than what we have. And they had more taxes in their day. I did some research on the taxes that Rome laid upon their provinces, specifically uh, the province of Judea, which we have from historians in their day. And they were heavy taxes. They really burdened the people. Taxes burdened them. We, we might be able to make an argument today that our taxes burden people, especially if they are poorer people, that taxes burden people. But in their day, it certainly did. The fact that he was a chief tax collector would mean they hated him. They thought he was a sinner. They would look down on him because he was a chief tax collector. They would have looked down on him if he was six foot five. Didn't matter. They looked down on him because of that. 
Jesus, when he ate with tax collectors, they were shocked. When he walked up to Matthew's table, Matthew was a tax collector and said, follow me. And Matthew left his, his uh, tax collecting table and followed Jesus and became the one who wrote the first gospel we come to. In time, it's not Mark was the first one written, but the first one we have in our, in our Bible is Matthew. And he used to be a tax collector. That's a picture of how God uses outcasts, how God brings outcasts in, does such a transforming work in their life that he turns them into something that is significant in the kingdom of God. That's true for everyone who is here. The second thing we learn about him is that he was rich. Now, this is important because earlier, the last chapter, Jesus runs into a rich young ruler. Jesus tells him, he asked Jesus, what must I do to enter the kingdom of God? Jesus says, you know the law. Basically, I'm going to paraphrase here. Keep the law. He says, I've kept the law since my youth. And Jesus says, one thing you lack, sell everything you have and follow me. It wasn't the selling everything that he had that would save him. It was the following me. Sell everything you have, follow me, and you will have the kingdom of God. Then you will have eternal life like you want. But he was sad because he had a lot of money and he left. Jesus put a finger on what would stop him from entering into the kingdom of God. And it would have been better for him had he sold everything he had and followed him. But we know that that is not a condition of salvation. If you are wealthy, you don't need to give everything away in order to be saved. Zacchaeus is one of the arguments for that because he doesn't give everything away. He gives part of it away, not everything. So um, he is a rich man. And Jesus said of a rich man, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. This is good for us to understand that your wealth can hinder you from receiving the gospel. We need to know that Jesus and the disciples said, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus said, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And now we're going to get a follow up to that story where a rich man gets saved. So that just in case you think because of the rich young ruler, well, I'm rich, I can't be saved. No, here we have a rich man being saved. So with God, all things are possible. And then it says, and he sought to see Jesus who Jesus was, but he could not because of the crowd. So he wants to see Jesus. And here again, we have Jesus seeking Zacchaeus and Zacchaeus seeking Jesus. And you might try to make the argument that Zacchaeus sought him, Zacchaeus sought him first and then Jesus, but Jesus is entering into Jericho because of his love for the people, maybe specifically to have this appointment with him. So Jesus is always the one to make the first move. Jesus draws you, Jesus knocks, you open the door, Jesus draws you and you respond. So Zacchaeus is seeking to save Jesus, but he can't because of the crowd, um, for he was of short stature. The average height of a male in the first century was around five feet tall. So if he is of short stature in the first century, then how short was he? I remember Skip Heitzig, who is my pastor out of Calvary Chapel of Albuquerque, teaching on this passage while I was there. And he said, I'm 6'5". He's 6'5". He says, I'm 6'5", and I can't imagine how small he would be. He made some joke like, come on, Zacchaeus, hide in my pocket while we go, you know, <laughs> along the way. Now, our culture honors height. It's not just our culture that does that, but all cultures have done that. Cultures still do it today. People who are tall, especially people who are tall and good looking, 
have advantages in the world. We see it in the Bible when Samuel goes to Jesse's house and, he, and God has told him, choose one of Jesse's sons to be king. And the first son he sees is Elib. Elib is the firstborn. He's tall and he's handsome. And, and Jesse says, surely that is a king. And God says, I have rejected him because men look on the outside, but I look on the heart and I've rejected him from being king. And he went through all the brothers of David. David was the, the seventh son. He went through all the brothers of David, maybe the eighth as I think about it, but he went through all the brothers of David. And then he said, got any more sons? And he goes, yeah, there's the, the kid, the runt. He's out in the field taking care of the sheep. And Jesse says, bring him here because we will not sit down until I have anointed him king. And so God had chosen David, which was the least likely to be chosen. Um, a little bit later on, Saul would be the first king of Israel. David would be the second. Saul was head and shoulders taller over anybody else. And the, the height of Zacchaeus would be accentuated by the hatred. Because they hated him, because he was a chief tax collector, because they took his money, they'd look at him and, oh, that little, you know, guy. They would just hate him. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him. Now, one pastor said that he ran ahead for protection. He didn't walk through the crowd slow, but he ran ahead for protection. What I notice about this, though, is that is very much like childlike behavior to me. Distinguished leaders don't run and climb trees, but Zacchaeus did. He ran through the crowd and he climbed up a tree. And I'm reminded of Jesus saying, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to become childlike. Now, I don't think that characteristic that makes a child being coming like a child is running and climbing trees. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's interesting to me that this is childlike behavior and he is going to end up getting saved. So he climbs up a sycamore tree. I couldn't find anything significant about the sycamore tree for he was going to pass that way. Jesus is coming by. He gets ahead of the, the procession. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him. And don't miss the fact that everybody has been looking down at Zacchaeus his whole life. But when Jesus sees him, he looks up at him in the tree. He looks up at Zacchaeus and he says, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down for today. I must stay at your house. He didn't even wait for an invitation from Zacchaeus. He just he just gave himself an invitation. I'm coming to your house to stay tonight. Now, that is very significant because Zacchaeus probably would have never have invited him. Zacchaeus would have thought these Jewish leaders hate me. The religious leaders hate me. Here is this rabbi traveling around all of the Galilee and Judea, healing people, preaching, calming seas, casting out demons. There's no way he's coming to my house. And this would speak to those of you who feel like you've done too much. There's too much sin in your life. You've been too addicted. There's something going on that God doesn't want you because you're not the kind of person God wants. But God says to you today, I'm coming to your house. I want to stay with you. He loves you. And there's nothing that can separate you from that love, Romans 8 tells us. God wants to walk with you and wants to know you. Now, you could very well say, I don't want to come to him I, because I just got too much in my life. There's too much darkness. But one of the things we're going to see that has changed is that your past is now gone and you have a new beginning with Christ. 
He is a God of fresh starts. He is the God of new beginnings and he will wipe away everything from the past, good and bad. And we'll talk about that in a moment when we talk about transformation. But you get a brand new beginning with Christ. What matters is looking to him, the author and the finisher of our faith, not what you have done, which Jesus took care of on the cross, which was brutal, enough to cover any sin. I've had people tell me before, I, I don't like the fact that a convicted criminal on death row who raped and murdered someone could be forgiven if they ask Christ into their heart before they're executed. And I said, well, where would you like it to be cut off? You ought to be glad that anyone can get saved because where would you like it to be cut off? Because someone would say, well, rape and murderers can't be saved. And then someone else will just say, well, murderers can't be saved. And someone else will say, well, adulterers can't be saved. And someone else will say, fornicators can't be saved. And pretty soon there's nobody that can be saved. Because all of us have things in our life that we are ashamed of, that we have sinned, that we need to have forgiven. So we ought to be glad that everybody can be saved. I've shared with you before that when James Dobson came out and said that Jeffrey Dahmer had committed his life to Christ, I said, I'm driving to church on Tuesday morning for our staff meeting. And this is a long time ago, right? Jeffrey Dahmer was the cannibal. Do you remember that? And uh, awful stories. Um, but uh, that when James Dobson said he went to prison, visited him and Jeffrey Dahmer got saved, I said, no, no, no. Because eating people is the line. When you eat people, <laughs> then that's it. You can't be saved when you eat people. But the Lord spoke quietly to my heart. There is no sin. This is the truth of the gospel. There's nothing that can keep you from being saved. Now they're shocked. It says in verse six, so he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. So this guy that ran through the crowd and climbed the tree now comes down and with great joy brings Jesus over into his house. But how do the people feel about it? How does the rest of the crowd feel about it? Verse seven, but when they saw it, they all, says everybody, leaving Jericho with Jesus, they all complained, saying, he has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. They were shocked by it. Maybe there was some jealousy. Why didn't you choose my house? I'm a pretty good person. What they don't realize is that Jesus came to seek and save sinners. That is why he came. And so here is the sinner and he seeks him out. Now, it says um, in verse eight, we get Zacchaeus's response to staying with Jesus. We don't have the conversation that Jesus had with Zacchaeus. And Luke is the only one that gives us this account. So we don't have any other gospels to draw on to get the conversations that happened with Zacchaeus and Jesus. We don't know how long he stayed there. However long it was, it was enough for salvation to come to that house and enough for Zacchaeus to be transformed. Now, I want to read you this in the New King James, which is the, the translation of the Bible that I use. Uh, but there are those that will say something about this. I want to tell you what that is in a moment. Let's read it first. Then Zacchaeus stood up and said, Lord, look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusations, I restore it fourfold. Now, there are people who read that. See, people love work-based religions. People love to have things you got to have to do to be saved. But the Bible has removed them all. The Bible says you're saved by grace through faith, lest you should boast. 
If there's not of works, lest you should boast. If there's any work that you can do to be saved, if you say, well, I have chosen to go to the right church and because I go to the right church, that's why I'm saved. Like God's up in heaven going, what denomination? And just letting people in or out, depending on the denomination. Well, I've, I, I found out you have to be baptized to be saved. So I was baptized. Now I made my way into heaven. Baptism is not a precursor to eternity. You are baptized when you become a Christian. You are not baptized to become a Christian. Speaking in tongues, churches, you got to speak in tongues to be saved. Churches, you got to go to our church to be saved. Uh, churches, if you, you got to follow our rules. Women can't wear pants. They can't wear makeup. They can't wear jewelry in order to really be saved. These are all out there. And they're out there in 2022, by the way. They're out there in our day and they're trying to add to it when in reality, salvation comes by grace. And you can't boast in grace. How can you boast in grace? Well, I, Robert Furrow, have been saved by the grace of God, which is undeserved favor. So I've been saved by getting something I don't deserve. You can't do it. No matter how much you would try to boast in it, you can't boast in grace. You've been saved by grace through faith, lest any man should boast. No, let me read to you. If you, you could go to Bible Hub or Blue Letter Bible. You can put in this passage, Luke 19, 8, and it will give you different versions of the Bible. It'll give you the ESV, the NASB, the New Living Translation. It'll give you all of them. And if you're ever wondering how uh, translators are struggling with the passage to make sure they, they do it right, reading different translations can help you. And you can go through and read that. And many of them say that Zacchaeus says, I will now give half my goods to the poor. And if I have cheated anyone, I will restore it fourfold. So it's a transformation. I want to read you the Amplified Bible. The Amplified Bible is a translation that takes the, the Greek and Hebrew definitions of a word and expands them into the text. So you don't just have the word they chose in English, but you've got the meaning of the Greek word or Hebrew word interlaid in it. Now, you got to be careful because sometimes two words together have a different definition than two words apart from each other, right? Sometimes a phrase means something that the collective words don't mean. So you've got to know, you know, you got to keep that in mind as you're reading through it. You got to do a little bit of more checking until, you know, you come up with some weird you know, doctrine from the Amplified Bible. So you just got to be careful. But listen to how the Amplified translates verse 8. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, See, Lord, I am now giving half my possessions to the poor. This is his transformation. He has come to Christ. Salvation has come to his house. This is after Jesus has been there. And he says, I am now going to give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anyone, I will give them fourfold. Now, Jesus's response, verse 9. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Joshua, Yahweh, I mean, or Joshua, or Jehovah, uh, Joshua. Let me just add Joshua. <laughs> Joshua's salvation has brought salvation to his house. Today salvation has come to this house because he also was the son of Abraham. He's not saying because he's Jewish. Remember, Abraham is the father of not only the Jewish people, but of the Arab people as well. And Galatians tells us clearly, you and I are descendants of Abraham if we believe. When you were a kid, you probably sang, Father Abraham has many sons, right? Well, here's the passage that explains how we are children of Abraham. It says in Galatians 3, 6 and 7, 
just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him righteousness. And what did Abraham believe? God said to Abraham, who had no children at the time, your descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky. And Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him righteousness. Then it says in the rest of the text, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. The real sons of Abraham are not the descendants of the Arabs or the Jews, but it's anyone who believes. That is who is the sons of Abraham. And so then Jesus gives us this, and this is the reason for the whole account. Jesus says, for the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. When Joseph had a dream and he was told what to name the baby, he was told to name him Jesus, for he would save his people from their sins. The reason he came was to seek and save the lost. He showed us the Father. He had a lot of good teachings. He did miracles. He did wonders. He, it is the greatest story ever told. There's no one person in all of history that has influenced cultures like Christ. None. He influences every aspect of every culture in all cultures. He has influenced this world in greater ways, but he came to seek and save the lost. So every time someone who is lost comes to God, lost from God, comes to God, that's why Jesus came. Now, let's talk about the transformation. Let's talk about the transformation that happened to him and us. So he's transformed and immediately it hits his pocketbook. And that might be the greatest sign of transformation for someone who's wealthy, who's, who's used to hanging on to money. And do you know that most millionaires don't buy new cars because they just can't part with the money? And you think, well, they've got money. Why can't they part with it? Because they're just like, I'm not parting for that for a car. It's going to lose value. I'm not going to do it. They just won't do it. So rich people are, you know, they hold on tightly. I'm not saying every rich person, right? So don't be offended if you're wealthy here today. I'm not talking about you. I'm just saying this is a, a, a quality of wealthy people. And he is transformed. You can see his conversion by immediately saying, I'm giving er half of everything that I have to the poor, which is part of our, transver uh, part of our uh, transformation as well. So I've broken our transformation up into three different sections. What happens to us inwardly when we're saved? What happens to our relationship with God when we're saved? And what happens to our behavior when we are saved? So let me cover these quickly. What happens to the inner man? First of all, you are forgiven of all your sins. I know you have heard this. I know it may be a case of so familiar that you are inoculated to it, but all of us know what it is like to do something that we feel guilty about. We did it and we're sorry we did it. We wished we wouldn't have done it but we can't take it back. Time seems to lighten that guilt. And if you do something over and over and over again, the Bible says your conscience can be seared with a hot iron. So sometimes saying you, your sins are forgiven you doesn't really affect people the way that it should. But God said, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. God has took off your filthy garment covered by the stains of sin and he has given you a clean white garment and he has forgiven your sin and taken away your guilt and taken away your shame. That is absolutely amazing. A new, fresh beginning. The second thing he does is gives you eternal life. This is the inward changes. He gives you eternal life. 
And this is not just the length of days. It's not just eternity. People will say to me, I think I'm going to get bored after a hundred trillion years. I don't think I want to live forever, they'll say, because it's just too long. Now, there was a television show called The Good Place. And after some complicated things, they make it into heaven. And once they're there, they live for however many trillions of years they live. And then they decide, I'm fulfilled. I'm satisfied. I've lived long enough. And they show them a portal and they can walk into the portal into annihilation. They can just do away with their lives because they've lived long enough and they're satisfied and they're fulfilled enough. That is not heaven. <laughs> heaven is not just living forever, golfing. Uh, okay, you don't want to golf anymore. I don't want to fish anymore. People will say, oh, how big are the, the bull elks going to be in heaven? Golf's going to be all hole in ones. How, what fun is that going to be? You know, they say things like that. And it's like heaven, it, when you're saved and you get eternal life immediately, it's a quality of life, not just a length of life. It's the fullness of love. It's the fullness of joy. It's the fullness of comfort. And it's being in a relationship with God forever. It's knowing him forever. You met somebody at some point that you decided you wanted to spend the rest of your life with. Whether that was a good or bad decision, I don't know. But you loved them enough you wanted to spend the rest of your life with. I guarantee you, if you make the decision to spend the rest of eternity with God, you will not be sorry. God is well worth it that you would say, I give you my life and I surrender to you and you will live for him forever. And I don't think it's going to be about hunting elk or golf or things of this earth, something, something far greater. Um, the third thing is Christ in you and you are in Christ. Jesus said, if you love me, I and my father will live with you. And he sent the Holy Spirit to be inside of you. So the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which is the Godhead, are with me as a believer and with you as a believer. Everywhere you go, they're with me in a special way, different than they are there with other people because God now said, I will live with you. And there's a desire to change. And I don't have a lot of time to cover this whole concept of repentance. There's a controversy about repentance today. Some people believing that you have to repent before you get saved and some people believing that repentance is, the, is actual salvation, and I'm in that camp. Um, when uh, Repentance just means changing. So if I'm living for myself, and I decide I no longer want to live for myself, I want to live for God, I've got to turn around and go the other way. But now I want to live for God, and that means I have to leave the narcissistic self-seeking behind me and turn around and live for Him. I have changed my mind, I have repented from that, and I have followed God. I, it happens simultaneously. It is the same action. To repent is a pivot. You are, and that's all the word means, by the way, in the Greek. It means to change your mind. You went down to the store to buy green paint to paint your house and your wife said, get brown and you changed your mind and you got the brown. You repented from the green and you bought the brown because your wife said so and you decided to do that. That's it. I could use a hundred other analogies and I will at some point do an entire teaching on repentance so we can clearly see what it is. But when you are saved, you turn your back on what you have been living for and you now live for him because you love him and you enter into a relationship with him. And in order to do that, you've got to turn your back on what you have been doing, which is whatever sinful lifestyle or living for yourself has been. The second thing that happens, I took way too long on that one. The second thing that happens is that the changes, your relationship with God changes. 
Number one, you start to live by faith. That simply means you believe what God says. Like Abraham believed God, you believe what God said. Number two, you become a child of God. Not everyone is a child of God. John 1, 12 says, as many as receive him, he gives the right to become a child of God, which means now you have a heavenly father who loves you, who watches out for you. Jesus said, God takes care of the, the birds and the lilies. How much more does your father take care of you? Your father takes care of the birds and the lilies. How much more will your father take care of you? You have a heavenly father. He'll discipline you. But the disciplines of God are, they bring, a, they bring about the peaceable fruit of righteousness. We're taught to pray our father in heaven. He gives you the Holy Spirit. We're talking about how things change in your relationship with God. And when he gives you the Holy Spirit, your character changes and you produce the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the qualities as God's child filled with the Spirit that are being produced in our lives. Do I think all of us are there? No. Am I there? No. But I'm getting there. I'm better than I used to be. The, th the final thing that happens is our behavior changes. And I just want to make one point here. There's several I have. I just don't have time to cover them. But I want to make one point about this change of behavior. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then he said later in another place, the commandments of God are believing in the son whom he sent. So if you believe in Jesus, you're going to want to do what he says. John put it this way. If you say you love him, but you don't keep his commandments, these are the commandments of Jesus, you are a liar. In other words, if you say, I'm a Christian, I just don't want to do what God wants me to do. I'm not judging you, but you are really not a Christian. A Christian wants to do what God wants him to do. Doesn't mean you always want to do what God wants him to do. It doesn't mean you fail. We're not talking about that because in the same book that said that, it said, if you sin, you confess your sins and he is faithful to forgive you. We're just talking about what your desires are now. My desire is to do what God wants me to do. And because that's my desire, you end up doing what you want to do. Have you, have you ever discovered that? You will end up doing what you want to do. And if you want to, to obey Jesus, follow him, you'll do that. But if you say, I love Jesus, but I don't want to follow him. And people say that to me. They're involved in some kind of, of horrible thing. And they say, I'm not going to stop it. I love Jesus, but I'm not going to do it. It's like, can I read you a passage out of the book of John? That will maybe help you to understand that you can't claim both. You, you, if you love him, you're going to be doing the things that Christ says. Your behavior will change. And he changes addictions. He changes behavioral issues that have been embedded into us that we would call strongholds. He changes us radically for the better when we come to Christ. Those are just a handful of ways in which he changes us. And if you're here today and you have never invited Christ into your life, I, will, I want to give you that invitation that you would pivot from living for yourself and living for Jesus. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus said, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will save it. The way you save your life is to lose it for Christ. And if you're here today and you made a commitment a while ago, years ago maybe, and you walked away from that commitment and you are no longer following him, it's time to come home. It's time for you to return to Christ. It's time for you to find where God wants you to be. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. It is rich, deep, meaningful, powerful, and profound and really challenges us. Thank you for this transformation in the life of Zacchaeus. 
And we pray that we would be transformed as well as we invite you in and live for you. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.